0: Rest of us, if you would uh, turn in your Bibles to the Book of Hebrews, chapter 13, and we'll be reading verses 22 through 25 this morning. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Grace be with you all. Let's pray. Our Father, we are mindful of your grace and your mercy, two sides to the same coin, one in which in your mercy you withhold from us that which we deserve, and the other your grace that you give to us that which we have not earned. To you, the God of grace and mercy, we come, seeking both even now. Do not deal with us, O God, according to our sins, but deal with us according to the righteousness of Jesus. Show us your grace, O God, by opening up our hearts to your word that we may understand you and know you and walk in obedience to you and bring glory and honor to your name. We pray for our children, Lord. We ask that the children's worship will touch their lives and that their hearts will be given over to Jesus. For each one of us, O God, we present ourselves to you as living sacrifices. And we ask you to do with us as you will. And we will follow. In the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. Amen. This is our final sermon from the Hebrews series. It's been uh, right around 18 months that we've been uh, going through the the book of Hebrews. Um, and uh, I just want to remind you a little bit, a uh, quick overview of, of of the book, just to, uh, because I think it's really important that we we remember a little bit of the path that we've taken in order to understand exactly why Uh, the the author ends the book with the words that he does because it really is a, a culmination to what he's been showing us thus far. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. Uh, in a transition stage, in the covenantal transition stage. And that is, as, as the uh, God and His, his uh, grace is working, moving from the, the covenant of grace, the old administration of it, into the new administration of the covenant of grace, it changed everything and it made things very uncomfortable for the people of God who had been walking in the old administration of the covenant of grace. And so He's, he's reaching out to them to help them understand what this means. And he does that in the first five chapters. Really, the, the emphasis of, of Hebrews was the call to follow Jesus. And by that, for us, we'll say follow Jesus, and, and our emphasis tends to, to rest on the follow, right? That's where, where we go, because we know who Jesus is. We got all that. That's no big deal. Let's, but following, what does that mean? But you see, for them, the emphasis was on Jesus, because he was new to their mindset. He wasn't the, the central part, and so the, they knew they needed to follow, and he's saying, but it's, it's Jesus that you got to follow. That's why he starts out in verse 3 of chapter 1 in speaking of Jesus and says, and he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high. He says, this is the Jesus that you're supposed to follow and he shows them that this is God incarnate and then in chapter six there's kind of a transition from he's, he's, he's calling on them to follow Jesus and then he's, he's trying to say now you you need to keep moving forward because they can turn their attention on Jesus and they can honor Jesus and say Jesus is great but they've got to keep moving forward and so that's why the the first three uh, verses of chapter six he tells them, therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on. Notice that, that moving forward to maturity. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. Of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. He says, we're going to move forward. We're going to keep moving forward. And this, this theme really lasts from chapter 6 uh, through chapter 11. That, that, that push To move forward. But then in chapter 12, he begins to speak to them, not so much as individuals who are having to make this commitment to walk in the new covenant, but he starts to talk about their corporate identity. And he reminds them that you're a part of a church, you're a part of a a larger body. And so we see in uh, chapter 12, Uh, verses 12 and 13, this discussion about their interconnectedness. He says, Therefore, strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Saying, look, we're, we're relating with each other. We're walking this path together. We're not on our own. We're doing this as a body. And he gives them that reminder. And he gets to chapter 13. Verses 22 through 25. And he begins to, to say to them, "Look, remember everything that he's written. All that he said about following Jesus, about moving forward, about us being a body. And he says, now it's time, right? Now it's time to step up and take your place in the whole church. It's no longer the opportunity for you to just continue to be those, those uh, Jewish believers Well, the church is over here, and and the Jews are over here, but now it's time. Take your place, because you're a part of this body. So step up and be a part of that. Well, that's great for the first century. What's the message for us? I mean, right? We're a part of the church. We are. And yet churches today, there is such a tendency for us to do our own thing, right? Right? Churches have a tendency to view one another as competition, right? And I've seen it a, a number of times, you know, that uh, maybe someone will come in and, and they used to go to another church and we greet them, how you doing? And, you know, they're a visitor, glad you're here. And, and, you know, what's your story? And, oh, I used to go to Alpha Beta Presbyterian Church. And we're like, oh, then I know why you're here. Because we're better than them, Right. <laughs> And, and we say, we know what's wrong with all of them, and, and we kind of do our own thing, and, and we can have this mindset in which everybody's just doing their own thing, and we're not joined together as that church, seeking ways in which we can honor God together. We find ourselves separate from one another, so the call to us as a church, and this isn't to say, okay, so, you know, we we need to join with every church that calls itself a church, regardless of their theology, regardless of anything, and we're just all, everything's great, and, and, you know, so that suddenly we become uh, Unitarians or Universalists, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the fact that there there is still a working together with those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, and for us as the body of Christ to stand together, and for us as a congregation to take our place, Well, how do we do that? I think this passage shows us three ways. The first is that let's heed the word of God. Look at verse 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I thought about that as I was reading it earlier and thinking about this as uh, all the sermons that I've preached. And that would really be asking a lot. Bear with this, because I have preached an awful lot. (laughs) There's a whole lot of words on this passage. But, But he's saying, I've written to you briefly. And he says, bear with this word of exhortation. The word bear with. Is, is, is a word that means, according to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, it says that it means to, to receive, to take up, to bear, to endure. Thus one receives the word. I like that. How do I receive the word? I, I receive it. I take it up. I bear it. I endure it. I make it a part of who I am. It, it, uh, literally, means to hold up. Okay, now I want to think about that for just a moment. The Word of God, I want to hold up. Why? Well, there are different ways that I can do it. I can hold up the Word of God, and I can walk around just with the Bible, and I can say, see, here's the Bible, and you all can see the Bible, and I can use it so, see, you need to follow the Bible. Right? I've got the Bible up here so you can follow it. The other way is I hold up the Bible as a standard for me through which I need to compare the entirety of my life against it. And I need to live my life consistent with the message that is found in it. I hold it up as that light that shines into my heart and shows me the truth of what God is doing in my life and of who I am. And that's what this passage means. And the, the, the message to us is to heed the word of God, which means in the word of God, I need to find direction. He says... But I urge you, brethren. But I urge you. And the word urge is the Greek word para It's a combination of two words para, which means alongside, like a parallel line. And kaleo is to call. It's always easy. Kalo means to call. So Greek just does that for us, right? It just, just, they decided they'd make that easier for us. How do you call? You callo. That's what it means to call alongside. To call alongside. The, uh, it's used in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says, I urge you by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. So as Paul is trying to urge them, he's coming alongside. He says, I'm going to call myself alongside. I'm going to urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice. The picture is of a leader coming up to someone who's struggling. And puts his arm around the shoulder and in putting the arm around the shoulder he communicates so much number one I'm here there's a person here with you that arm pulls the person in and says and I accept you and I love you and I embrace you it gives strength you're not on your own and then with the elbow, there can also be a guidance and a direction as to where do we need to go, right? That's the word that the, the author is giving as he's putting his arm around us and he's urging us. He's saying the word of God, as is, is, is we heed the word of God, it is that, that arm that comes around us and begins to give us direction and show us where we ought to go and how we ought to live. I love the uh, uh, advice that Dawson Trotman, who's the founder of The Navigators, would give often as people would come to him and seek advice on various issues. And he would ask them, first of all, what are the principles involved in the decision that you have to make? And he'd require the people to sit down and write out those principles. And then he would say, and what does the Word of God have to say about those principles? And as he would write down what the Word of God had to say about those principles, he'd say, go do that. And that was the direction. And there's brilliance in that because it's forcing us to not be dependent upon an individual telling us what to do, but on the word of God and to be comparing our life with what the scripture has to say, that the scripture is directing us with how we need to live. We see in Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, the instruction about what scripture is, that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for Teaching. It tells us that which is true. For reproof, it shows us where we're in error. For correction, for it shows us what ought to change. And for training in righteousness, and it shows us how we can live this consistently. To utilize the scripture in that way in our lives, that we are getting direction from the word of God, choosing to follow it. Now, I tell people this often. And uh, a friend of mine, actually he was a, a medical doctor and he's the one who told me and I think he's right. And uh, his comment was, if, if you're gonna go see a doctor or an attorney, do what they say. You can, get, you can be louder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Here's our, 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 our resident judge who's, <laughs> because you're paying them because they have an expertise in a particular area, right? That you simply do not have. And so why would I not follow that instruction? What expertise does the Lord God Almighty have? How about like in the entirety of our lives? And so when I read it in the word of God, it may look hard, but that's irrelevant, isn't it? Because it is right. It is what God has called us to do, as hard as that may be. And as we walk that hard path, he will be faithful. He will sustain us through that. And so we seek to follow him, to hold up the scripture and follow it, that we can find direction. We can also find comfort. He goes on to say, But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation. The word of exhortation. I want to read to you. I, I rarely, rarely do this. Um, we'll, we'll look at uh, the translation of the Amplified Bible. The Amplified Bible, in in seminary, we used to teasingly call it uh, the multiple choice Bible because in the Amplified, it gives you just all kinds of different translations of the words and kind of strings it all together to kind of, it's it's helpful because you can kind of get an idea of of the, the various nuances of the word. It can also be a little bit confusing. But in this case, I thought it was really, really helpful. He says, I call on you, brethren, to listen patiently and bear with this message of exhortation and admonition and encouragement. (laughs) <laughs> exhortation, admonition, encouragement. He says, this, this word that's there has all of that idea in it, and I appreciate that they, they bring that out, and so that we can understand a little bit about what this word means when he says to bear with this word of exhortation. It's used uh, at a, a couple different places. Um, oh, by the way, I'll talk about that in just a second. In, in, in Luke chapter 2, 25, um, do you remember uh, Simeon is looking for the consolation of Israel? That's the same word that's that's used at this place. It's used a few times in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, um, and it's translated as comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we'll be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. It goes on through verse 7. He just keeps using this word. Do you think he's trying to make a point? I I think he's emphasizing something. And the word that's used there is the same word that we have in our place. It's also used in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort in Christ... That's the word that's used there. Now, what's interesting is this word is the word parakaleo. It comes from parakaleo, the same word that we had for urge. It's the same word. So he talks about, I I urge you to bear with this word of urging, if you will. I comfort you to bear with this word of comfort. And he he lays this out for us to, to understand this idea of him coming alongside. Because there is a comfort in direction, is there not? Have you ever felt like I have no idea what to do or where to go? Just completely lost. Not, not lost like out in the woods, but lost in, in the midst of the world, and I just don't know where to go. I don't know which way to go. And to have that arm come around, is a comfort. To have direction to say, this is the way to go, is a comfort to us. And to find comfort in the scripture, because when the word of God is received in faith, it always brings comfort. For when the word of God is received in faith, and that word of God brings correction. That word gives us an opportunity to correct ourselves, right? And to do that which is right. When that word comes to us and it's assurance of pain, the promise of Jesus that you will encounter trials in this life. Consider it pure joy, my brethren, when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. There is a promise from God that we will face hardship, that we will ache in this world, that we will cry out in pain. But that's comforting because the one who has told me that is the one who guarantees that he will carry me through And I can take refuge in him. Refuge won't take away the pain, but he will sustain me through it. And in the end, the pain will not win. In the end, Jesus will be glorified and I will be comforted. So I take comfort in the message of the word of God. And even when that message is one of condemnation. I so appreciated the Sunday school class today, Tim and looking at Nahum, and it's this, this, this message about God's vengeance and, and his wrath, and, and you know what the emphasis of our entire class was? It was great. Tim took us back. He said, this is a Sunday school class. What's this about? It's about Jesus, and it's about not the, the wrath, but the call that, that that recognition of wrath gives to us that there's salvation possible there is hope. Wrath doesn't have to come to me. With the, the message of condemnation that says, yes, you have sinned, comes the hope. But Jesus has died for that sin. And so come to Him. And if you have never trusted in Jesus, now is the time, this moment, and find that comfort. So in the Word of God, we find direction. In the Word of God, we find comfort. And in the Word of God, we find motivation. I want to read just a little bit of one of my uh, favorite literary passages, and this is uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote this. It was a speech that he gave called The Man in the Arena. Now, I'm a, I'm a sucker for motivational sayings, just to be clear. Um, I watch Rocky, and I'm all excited every time. I know how it ends, and it doesn't change the fact that I am just motivated. But when I Read these words, and I imagine what it would have been like to hear Theodore Roosevelt speak them, and it's just so true. He says, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcomings, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who knows the great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails at least fails while daring greatly so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. And I am just fired up. It's like, amen. That is true truth. That's what God calls us to do. That's what I find in the Scripture is a motivation that I can do this. I don't have to stand here and be terrified by the size of the mountain. I can be encouraged that each step up that mountain moves me closer to conquering it. And I'm motivated by that. He says in this passage, he says, For I've written to you briefly. Briefly. Now, he's was going to do a word study on that, but what briefly means is briefly. So it wasn't a very long, uh, which is appropriate, a very, very long word study. It, it, it's just just a little He says, I gave you just a bit. At the end of this book, Hebrews, he says, I've written to you briefly saying, what I've written to you, it's not too much, folks. Right? It's easy for us to look at it and say, well, we took 18 months through it, and Pastor was moving pretty quick. It sounds like an awful lot. He says, no, 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 it's not too much. It's not too much. You got this. You got this. Don't worry about that. Be motivated. This is going to be okay. My mind turns to Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, "Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." How easy is this for a, easy, not very. How easy is it for us to say this simple sentence that's in my mind but won't come off of my lips? How easy for us to get distracted and to notice where he says, take my yoke. And like, oh, that's so hard. I don't want to carry another burden. And he says, come to me. It's like, I don't want to come. You come to me, Jesus, right? I'm tired. Why don't you come to me? And we can see those, those efforts in us and we can be afraid of that until we then begin to look a little bit closer at what he has to say, that he says, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. Salvation is in this path. That's what's before us. That's what's promised to us. And he says, we can do it. He says, I've written to you briefly. As we look at the scripture, God has not given to us a burden that is beyond the ability of his spirit working in us. But he's given to us something that gives life to us and motivates us to seek him and to pursue him with all of our hearts. So let's heed the word of God. And then let's love the others. Verse 23 and 24. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. Greet all of your leaders and all the saints, those from Italy greet you. Notice that I said, I didn't say let's love others, but the others. Them. We live in an age in which things are divided between us and them, right? And what do we mean by that is? Well, us is good and them is bad right? That's just how we live our lives. We have this, this, this dichotomy. We've got this uh, binary system in which uh, our, our entire culture is built around today, in which all of our, whether it be the church, uh, politics, uh, sports, wh- whatever it is, nations, we are good and they are bad. And so we're always afraid of them, the others. And so we keep ourselves distance And a part of it is this, this idea of chauvinism which is entrenched in in our our culture. Uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary gives us a a definition of chauvinism that I think is really helpful. It's undue partiality or attachment to a group or place to which one belongs or has belonged. And some of us are of the age that we remember, you know, the old saying from the 70s, right? A male chauvinist pig. You know, it, just, it, just, it was like it was a single word that we would use, right? And, and, and we talk about that. But what do we mean by that? We meant that we believed that men were superior, right? We gave preference to men. That's what male chauvinist meant, is I prefer and I give the, the, the preference there. And that was why the individual was referred to as, as a pig, is because you, you, you've, you've made men more important than women. And that, that's, that's wrong, but we can begin to do that in, in our lives in other ways. We have this chauvinistic tendency to where we want to protect our group and we think our group is always right and never wrong. And the other group is always wrong and never right. And so we find ourselves isolated from anybody who has a view different than ours, anybody who's in a different group than ours. Compare, And, and it's not just now. That was very much the case in the first century. I mean, we've all seen it. We we know the stories in the New Testament about the Jews and the Gentiles, right? That the Jews, you know, the Gentiles were evil. The Jews were good. They, they had that same chauvinistic mindset that, that we're good and they're bad. That was, in fact, I think in many ways the great failure of the Old Testament. We like to think that, that the the gospel changed in the new testament that now we're supposed to go out and tell all the nations and we think that that's a new testament thing right we think that the great commission is just new testament go therefore and make disciples of all the nations and yet when we go back to genesis chapter one god told adam and eve to fill the whole earth we see god speaking to abraham in genesis chapter 15 and he's telling abraham in you all of the nations of the earth are going to be blessed and that recognition of the need to go out to all of the nations. We find out in the prophets, the great prophecies of how the, the, the Jews and the Gentiles are going to be brought together in a single family. The failure in the Old Testament was the chauvinism that was there, that they believed that we as the Jews are the good ones and they're all the bad ones, and so we keep ourselves safe. When we have that same mindset in the New Testament, except we read in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul telling us of what the the great mystery of the message that he brought into uh, the New Testament was. He says, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, to be specific. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's saying to them, Jews and Gentiles are the same body. They're not the them. They're the us. We're the us. I think it's important for us to understand that because as we take our place with the whole church, we're going to meet up with Arminians and hyper-Calvinists, with perfectionists and Pentecostals and pietists, I couldn't think of any other P ones, so forgive me. There's one left. With Lutherans, with Baptists, and even an occasional Presbyterian. That's the church. It's not just our view. And we're a church that believes in the sovereignty of God. Amen? Okay? Some of you believe that God had ordained that the amen was already included so you didn't say anything. And I get that. I get that. That's that's fine. We believe that God has ordained everything. He's sovereign. Which means, isn't it somehow in his sovereign decision that some people don't believe in the sovereignty of God? Could it be he's in charge even of that? Well, then why can I be upset? You see the point? To begin to love the others, those who aren't a part of my group, because they are the bride of Christ. I found great comfort and love in Psalm 16, verse 3. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. A wise man told me once How can I love Christ and hate his body? can't. I have to love the others. This passage shows us how to do that in a a couple different ways. First of all, I can love the others as I look at their faith. Verse 22, uh, verse 23. Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released with whom if he comes soon, I will see you. Take notice is the Greek word ginosko, which means to know. We talk about an agnostic, that's just gnosko with an alpha privative, the, the not knowing. That's what agnostic means. And uh, that's the word that's used here. So you, you know it to be true. He says, look at their faith. And who does he mention? Timothy, right? Timothy. Well, think about what we know about Timothy for just a moment. We know that Timothy's dad was a Gentile, right? He, he was a Greek. His mom was a Jew, But because his dad was a Gentile, Timothy wasn't actually circumcised on the eighth day like a Jew is supposed to be. We know that because Paul had him circumcised after he became a believer, which is a different issue altogether. We can talk about that at another time, but that's the reality of what took place. For our thinking, I want us to think about that. Who's he writing to again, the the author of this book? He's writing to Jewish believers. And who does he refer to? Timothy, who was part Jew but not fully and hadn't actually followed the law exactly right. And he's commending him to them, is he not? He's taking them and he's saying, look beyond. And I think as I was studying this this week, I began, and and I know Tim will appreciate this, thinking about who the author of of Hebrews is. And there is an idea that, that the author of Hebrews could have actually been the Apostle Paul who wrote it in Hebrew, And then someone translated it into Greek. And I thought, and couldn't it have been someone who grew up speaking Hebrew and Greek, like Timothy, who could have translated it? And maybe, and I just just find it's somewhat compelling to me to think of what that would then mean to these people receiving this letter, recognizing that it's translated by this man. Either way. I see the faith of Timothy laid out before these people who, by their culture, should despise him, and the author is saying, "Love him." Love him." because know his faith. Look at his faith, because he show us something else about his faith, and his faith was such that he was persecuted for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had just been released. been released from prison. He'd been imprisoned because of what he believed in Jesus, but he remained faithful, and he's held up to them and commended to them. I think we need to learn to see the powerful faith in others who are not in our group. There are non-Presbyterians who trust Jesus in powerful ways. There are Presbyterians who trust Jesus in powerful ways. Amen? Amen. But faith doesn't reside just with us, it's much bigger than that, and I want the eyes to be able to see the faith of my brothers and sisters who aren't in my group, so that I can love the other, and to recognize the reality of that faith which is there. And I need to learn from them. Missions is, is great, short-term missions is wonderful. Wonderful. Short-term missions force you to look at Christianity in a whole new way. When I first went on my first mission trip to Belize, my goal was I wanted to see where my faith intersected with their faith. Because they would express their faith different than I do. And I thought, if I can begin to find that spot where they intersect, I think I can begin to understand a little bit more about that which is most central to Christianity, right? And then I went to Malawi. And we went to different uh, traditions there and to be able to experience worship, uh, w- whether it was in a village uh, with the, the language being primarily Chechewa or in, in the larger community of, of other Africans that were together and, and mostly in English, but to see then those, those continuing circles and to begin to see a little bit more and then to be able to learn from my brothers and sisters in other cultures, in other um, expressions of their faith, I've, I've, I've told the story of uh, going to Belize and one of the things we learned in Belize, we were always told, do things the Belizean way because they know what they're doing. And so we went there and we were tasked with pouring uh, cement onto a roof for this uh, large school, which in Belize, what that meant was, down on the first floor, you mix the concrete and then you shovel it into five gallon buckets and you lift up those buckets and you walk up two flights of stairs down a hall and lift it up to the roof. And one bucket at a time, they began to pour the ceiling or the roof of this place. And we had this massive area to do. And we thought, well, what do we do? Well, we're Americans. What do you do? You got a fire, you got buckets. What do you, you fill up a bucket and you do that bucket brigade, right? And so that's what we started. And the Belizeans came to us and said, no, 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 no. Each person carry your own. We're like, that's just crazy stuff. There's no way we're doing that. We would be so exhausted. What we didn't take into account was they actually knew what they were doing. We, every one of us, had to carry every single bucket. When we switched to the way that they were doing it, I only had to carry every 20th bucket. Oh, (laughs) hadn't thought about that. Too arrogant. But to stop and to look and say, I can probably learn something about faith from someone from a different group within Christianity than my own. As I love the other, I can learn from them. To look at their faith and to know that they love me. I've written about this at different times. Um, I counsel this regularly that I think most of my life there are two great truths I need to live. And those two great truths are, I do not need other people to love me. I do not need you to love me. I do not need my wife to love me. This is an essential truth that I must build my life on, that I only need the love from Jesus Christ. The second truth is, She does love me. You do love me. Other people do love me. Do you see the point of having both of those truths? And the tension that they create in our lives? The reality is I always have to live my life according to truth, and both of those are truths, so I have to hold on to them. The other side of it is it keeps me balanced to understand my relationship with people and to be able to reach out to them and love. He says, greet All of your leaders and all the saints and those from Italy greet you. Greet. I love this. The word means to enfold with your arms. Wouldn't it be great if the English translation was hug? Because isn't that really... I couldn't come up with another word to describe, to embrace someone or enfold someone in your arms, except hug. And maybe you can come up with another one. Maybe throttle. I don't know. I don't think that's right. But... uh, so he saying to hug, to enfold them in your arms. Who are you supposed to hug? Your leaders. He says hug them. All the saints. That's every single one of them who trusts in Jesus Christ. And then look where he goes. Those in Italy greet you. Italy. Isn't that where Rome is? Wasn't Rome kind of controlling Jerusalem at that time? even those Gentiles who are a part of the system that is oppressing the Jews greet you. Why do they greet me? Because they love you. To recognize that they, the them, the others, actually love you. And that makes a difference in my life. So as I take my place in the whole church, the first thing that I do is I heed the word. The second is I need to love the others, but finally I need to live in grace. And some of you are looking at your watch saying, Oh my, this is gonna be a long one. No, this is gonna be really brief. Grace is God's provision for all our needs. It's always undeserved. We don't do anything to get it. It's God's provision for all of our needs. I want us to meditate on two elements of what it means to live in grace. The first is to be continually aware of your perpetual dependence on God. I tried to word this very carefully, very precisely. To be continually aware of your perpetual dependence on God. Now, uh, Friedrich Schleiermacher would tell us that the seat of religion is the sense of utter dependence and so it's easy for us to to become shermachian in our thinking and to begin to say okay yeah, yeah i get that yeah it's, it's i feel my dependence that's what's really really important but i want to stress to you that the feeling of dependence is not everything it's not enough to acknowledge your dependence you must trust which means to live as though it's true that jesus meets those needs it's not just that i need god but I've got to trust that he meets my needs, right? And so that's the second step of living in grace is to continually trust in God's perpetual provision for all of your needs. To continually trust in God's perpetual provision for all your needs. I need forgiveness of sins. He's provided, right? Right? I need strength to face this temptation that I'm facing today. He's provided. He's already given me what I need. I can move forward in faith. I need comfort. He's there. I can trust in his provision. I can live as though he has provided it. Will you allow me as as your pastor for just a moment? to tell you how encouraged I am by this congregation. Um, it, it, it really lifts up my heart to see God at work in your midst and to see the different ways in which this church has, has taken its place in the church at different times. Um, Providence has a wonderful influence in our presbytery I am so excited to see the number of our ruling elders that are at Presbytery. And you get the, the, the minutes of Presbytery, and you begin to read through them, and every, every, all the ruling elders are there. We can send two ruling elder representatives every Presbytery. And you know how many we have at virtually every Presbytery? Two. And we've got guys lined up, right, ready to go, um, ready, ready to be there. Not only that, your ruling elders serve on the committee's of our presbytery, so that they're not just showing up at the meeting, but they're actually doing the work in between the meetings? As a matter of fact, did you know that Jay Hassinger was last year's moderator of our presbytery? And that he is now the current uh, chairman of our uh, ministry relations committee? Well done. But not only there, also at General Assembly. We can send two ruling elders to General Assembly each year. Do you know how many we send each year? Two? Two? And you know what else? A lot of guys go to General Assembly, they just show up when the business starts and they just do the business on the floor, but a lot of the work is done by the Committee of Commissioners before the business starts, and your ruling elders serve on the Committee of Commissioners as a regular basis, and they're involved in the decisions that are going on, even important things like our our Overtures Committee and uh, these important committees of commissioners, and they're serving in that capacity, and they're having an impact. Do you know what else they've done? they have funded for other churches to be able to send their ruling elders because we believe it's so important that the churches be involved. I see that and I'm just so encouraged. And this year, it's great. We got guys already bidding. I mean, by the time I got back from GA last year, we had guys bidding to go this next year. It's really cool um, that they want to be there. They want to be involved. They want to take their place. Well done, Providence. But you know, it's not just that. I look at these various ministries around uh, the, the, the city and I see the names of Providence people involved in these ministries. Human Life Services is just the easiest one to, to go for. I could say, raise your hand if you're involved with Human Life Services, but everybody's gonna raise their hand. I'd have to say, raise your hand if you're not, you know, and like three of us might, might but, but you're, you're, you're engaged in the ministries uh, in this community. You're taking your, your, your place. And I just want to encourage us, let's keep that going. Let's continue to take our place. And it's not just in all those things that we do. We take our place when we heed the word of God, we take our place when we love the others, and we take our place when we live in grace. Let's pray. Our Savior. Thank you for this journey through this book that speaks to us. I pray that you will help us as a congregation to move forward in following Jesus and that we will take our place and that you will bless this church, O God, that you will speak of this congregation, that it is a place where men, women, and children come to know you as their Savior. We pray, our God, that you will expand our ministry, that you will utilize us to reach individuals for you. Oh God, let your hand rest upon this church, that our power comes from you. And please, Father, keep us from all evil. For the name of Jesus, amen.